This episode of Earl Grey is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. Hi, this is Robert O'Reilly. My name is Gowron. Honor to you and your house. You're listening to Trek FM. Theo Greyhawk. Hello and welcome to another exciting episode of Earl Grey. I'm your host, Richard Marquez, and joining me as always is the lovely Amy Nelson. How you doing, Amy? I am doing so good today. I'm really looking forward to uh, this episode that we are recording and it just, it warms my heart and hopefully you listeners will leave after listening with a very warm and full heart for next gen. That's a lot of warmth, Amy. <laughs> I know, I'm feeling the love. It's love all around. <laughs> awesome. And joined with us also is the very well organized Mr. Justin Ozer. How you doing, Justin? I'm doing great. Thanks. You put in a different compliment this week. I appreciate that. Uh, de- I'm definitely looking forward to this this episode as well. Uh, I think that we're, we're really going to enjoy sharing our thoughts and hopefully the listeners uh, will enjoy that as well. Today we have a special episode for you uh, because this week marks the 30th anniversary of the first airing of Encounter at Farpoint, the very first episode of TNG. In this episode, we have interviews with TNG actors and fans that were captured at this year's Star Trek Las Vegas convention And we'll be also adding our own thoughts on what TNG means to us on this 30th anniversary. Richard, I am so happy Next Gen is 30 years old. It is truly, it just means so much to me. I obviously love Next Generation. To me, it defines what Star Trek is. I mean, the philosophy shines through with each episode. I watch each episode and I'm able to find meaning, humor, and compassion Um, Each character adds a different element that completes the story. I love that the episodes provide great talking points. I can always watch an episode and whoever I'm watching it with, you know, we can just have a discussion about the topics that come up. And to me, that's that's very important uh, when I'm watching a show. And I like that it makes me think more deeply about life. So many times I watch a show, watch an episode, and there's... It's always about choices. How are you going to choose something within your life? And you get to see that through the uh, different characters and what they bring to the episode. I know some people may find flaws with Star Trek and especially the next gen, but I'm able to overlook them because next gen means so much to me. I feel that I view next gen through rose colored glasses and or in the soft focus. You know, it just it's so beautiful to me. I, I love 
watching Next Gen. And I don't apologize for this. In 2002, I had an opportunity to uh, get my master's degree. And I'm a teacher. And so I was wondering, what should I do? Uh, Should I take my master's degree and go into administration, more of a leadership role? Um, I knew I wanted to stay in education. And at that time in 2002, I was very much into next gen. And I was looking at the characters and Troy's character, as if you listen to Earl Grey, know that I really appreciate her contributions to the show. And I had a lot of students that were uh, telling me their problems and and their struggles that they have in their life. And I thought, you know, if I go into administration, that's going to remove me from the classroom. And my passion really is for the students. And not that Troy influenced me, but it was a factor that I considered because I felt that her role in the show was so important. And so I chose to get my master's degree in counseling, um, in part because I liked that she, uh, that Troy was still involved with the crew. Um, and, but not so much in a commanding sense. And for me, that fit in my life. And so once I made that decision to go into educational counseling, like I went through my master's and I felt like I learned so much and within the education realm of counseling, but then also understanding her character a little bit more. So that is one reason why I have Troy as one of my favorite characters, because she did in a small, small way, influenced me to become a real life counselor in, uh, in school. So I really love next gen. And those are just some of my thoughts on what next gen means to me. Our first two interviews are with Denise Crosby, who played Tasha Yar and Sila and Natalia Nagulich, who played Admiral Necheyev. We are so excited to have these two interviews and hope that you enjoy. I'm here with Denise Crosby, who played Tasha Yar on Star Trek The Next Generation. So let's start out by asking, uh, what's your favorite non-Star Trek role that you've played or project you've been involved with? Wow. You know, it's hard to say, you know, my favorite. I mean, I've certainly enjoyed doing um, Pet Cemetery, the film, Stephen King film. And uh, there was a short-lived series I did for Fox called Key West, um, in which I just that's the first thing I did after Pet Cemetery when I left uh, Star Trek. I've been recurring on Ray Donovan, which is a Showtime series on um, the last four seasons. That's been really, really fun. Really good, too. Uh, great. So is there a recent um, book, show, or movie that you saw or read that you really loved? Oh my gosh, Um, I really have loved the uh, series on HBO, The Leftovers. I've really enjoyed that series a lot. Finished that, Um, and of course I'm watching Game of Thrones like everyone else in the world. Um, Really love that. I just recently saw Dunkirk, the film, and and really thought it was just a beautiful piece of filmmaking. And, and, um, you know, I learned a lot. I didn't know much about the Battle of Dunkirk, so it was um, just incredible. Christopher Nolan did an amazing job. Oh, great. So do you have a, a favorite memory from working on Star Trek The Next Generation? You know, there were so many um, fond moments and memories. It's hard to say a favorite. You know, we really um, 
we really bonded as a cast, and 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 we spent so many so many hours together that we we kept it we always kept it enjoyable and fun and and made each other laugh you know to get through these unbearably long days so I've been here now four years and I always see the panels and like I always see you and Marina sitting next to each other do you guys have a special friendship bond or am I just imagining things uh well we you know we we don't get to see each other, you know, until we come to these events. So it's um, it's a way that we can check in and, 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 you know, have some dinners and have some um, moments together. Our lives, you know, obviously are busy and in different directions. So um, I think all of us enjoy a, a, a one-on-one relationship with each other that's unique. So... Not e- nothing, nothing more than or less than each other. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we recently did uh, an episode on our podcast where we compared you to Vasquez from Aliens, um, and we heard that uh, Gene Roddenberry had the uh, his his inspiration his inspiration yeah. and showed Aliens to the. I think the writers, the writers and, and stuff. Yeah. Have you seen Aliens, Vasquez? The yeah. oh, sure. I mean, I've I've seen you know both Alien and Aliens, and um, it's funny because um, I know the actress that played Vasquez, so um, uh, Jeanette Goldstein. So. Um, and in fact, she had a, a small role in Generations as a science officer on the Enterprise B. Right, yeah. right, exactly. So, um, I know that, that that came up, you know, when when the notion of, of the original idea for Tasha Yar, and it changed, and of course, Marina originally read for the part of, of Tasha. So, yeah, I think it was probably along those lines somewhere. Awesome. Well, so I'm interested, you know, how the experience might have been different when you were on in, um, in, in season one, and then when you, you came back for something like Yesterday's Enterprise or, or Seal later on, like how the experience might have been, you know, might have been different or if things were different in the different seasons that you appeared in. Um, you know, it was always, um, it was always a little different for me, just because I sort of had it, I was a little bit at arm's length from from everybody else, because I did step away. I don't know how to, you know, say really, talk about the difference. It was just always an interesting um, chance to come back and revisit something. You don't often get to do that. Once you leave something, you're usually gone from it. You don't have the opportunity to usually go back in. So, um, it always is a little bit of um, like re-entry that you have to kind of experience and get back into the group because those guys had not broken the rhythm. They'd always been in and I had stepped aside and done other things and then come back, try to find my way back into this this arena. So it has its challenges, but it was never, you know, it was always, I always found it a little more interesting that way. Great. Um, so tell us about any you know current work or upcoming projects you'd like to let our listeners know about. Well, again, um, season five premieres Sunday night on uh, Showtime of Ray Donovan. Look for me in that. And um, 
I have done a couple of indie films. One is a film called Itsy Bitsy that should be out sometime in the next year. And I also recently did a, um, a Stephen King uh, short story up in Canada for a Canadian director. Um, blanking on the name of it, The Doctor's Case. Huh. Well, it was Stephen, uh, Stephen's um, uh, variation on Sherlock Holmes. He wrote a Sherlock Holmes tale, but it's, it's from um, uh, Dr. Watson's point of view. It's the one and only case that Dr. Watson solved instead of Holmes. Oh, yeah. very yeah. interesting. Yeah, so it's, it's really fun. It, it kind of jumps back it, from 1940 England, war, war-torn uh, London to 1872. It goes back and forth. So um, really kind of a cool project. Oh, great. So also, um, tell our listeners where they might find you uh, online, on social media, or elsewhere if they wanted to connect with you. Sure. They can follow me on Twitter at the Denise Crosby. And um, pretty much that's the most, the most social media I use is Twitter right now. Sometimes I'm on Facebook. Um, Denise Crosby is my Facebook um, uh, page. But mostly Twitter is the best way to, to reach out. Okay. Wonderful. Well, thank you for taking the time to interview with us today. My pleasure. I'm here with Natalia Nagulich, who played Admiral Necheyev on Star Trek The Next Generation and Deep Space Nine, and I wanted to ask you a few questions. So first I'd like to start out with, what's your favorite non-Star Trek role that you've done? Oh, that's a good question. I would have to say it was a series that I did for TNT. It was called Lazarus Man, and uh, the character was uh, Joie de Winter, and she was um, posing as a lady of the night, but was really a double spy during the Civil War. She was fascinating and multi-layered, and I loved her. Um, Part of my attraction to Admiral Necheyev is her many layers as well. I like playing complex characters, strong characters, who are about doing things that they believe in. And that was true of this Lazarus Man um, series as well, obviously, of Necheyev. You know, she had um, the interest of the Federation always foremost in her thought, and anything that interfered with that, she dealt with. It gave me a taste of how difficult it must be to be a leader on that level where you have to make hard decisions and you have to um, annoy some people because you can't always be nice. You just have to be effective and you have to be true to the things that you think will work best. Clearly, she was all about saving the Federation above all else and protecting the citizens of the Federation. She didn't have a lot of margin for playing nice with anybody, you know. At least that's the way she was presented initially. I think in the later episode that I did, there was a little more softness added to her. But um, it's hard being in charge. I got a taste of that. Yeah. Oh, wonderful. So, what would be a favorite memory from working on Star Trek The Next Generation? Well, I think the, the, uh, one of my favorite moments was um, the episode that Patrick Stewart directed and he was in. And I thought 
this is going to be interesting, you know, because my scenes were all with him, and we would rehearse the scene, and then he'd go, they would record it on video, and then he'd go back and look at it and make any adjustments he wanted to make, give me any notes he wanted to give me, or, or whatever, and then they would shoot it, and then he'd go back and look at it, you know, it was kind of uh, interesting, and I think, I think that was the one where I had to chastise him about taking in the board and healing them and giving them a name and making nice with them instead of obliterating them which because they were our enemies and uh, I remember giving him a command that uh, he responded yes sir and <laughs> not so happily but um, that was fun that was a lot of fun but I loved every minute of, of the work that I did on Star Trek because the writing was so high level such high level stuff in in the storyline I mean the the way it reflected uh, what was going on in the world in a kind of subtle way, sometimes not so subtle way, was fascinating to me. I mean, Roddenberry was a prophet. You know, he saw things we didn't see coming, and I have utter respect and affection for what he created. And to have been part of it was heaven. That's great. So you also did a couple of episodes of Deep Space Nine. Do you have a favorite memory from that particular experience? Oh, yeah. Deep Space Nine, the first episode I did of Deep Space Nine, first of all, working with Cisco was a blast. He's a great, great actor, and we worked well together. Naturally, I was giving him orders he didn't want. That was my role. But... Um, when I did uh, Star Trek Next Gen, I w my character was very dismissive of um, Riker, Lieutenant Riker. You know, it'd be like, okay, we're done with you now, you can leave. You know, I dismissed him. <clears throat> so the first day on the set in DS9, he happened to be directing the episode. And he came over to me and he goes, now I can get back at you. <laughs> of course he was teasing, but I thought, oh my gosh, you know, dismissing Riker resulted in uh, Jonathan Frakes having, uh, being tough with me in, in uh, directing uh, DS9, but he, he wasn't. He was, he was wonderful. It was kind of fun, though, oh. to think of that. Yeah, that's a fun story. Yeah. So uh, tell us about what you're working on now or any upcoming projects you'd like to tell our listeners about. Oh, yes. Well, um, a couple of years ago I wrote a book called One Woman's War, which is, again, about a strong woman who um, endures a, a terrible loss during a civil strife in the Balkans in the 1990s when all the, that horrible stuff was happening back there. <clears throat> it's historical fiction. It is fiction, but it's based on a, a lot of... Um, you know, hard-won research, and I even went there, and so on, and um, it really becomes a, a story of revenge versus forgiveness, and um, I am um, very, very pleased with the book. It's called One Woman's War. It's out on Amazon. A number of people in, in the convention this last couple of days uh, bought a copy because usually women who said, oh, I love reading about strong women, you know. And what I'm working on now is the second, uh, it's a trilogy, and the second book is um, about this strong woman's daughter and what it's like to be the daughter of a strong woman and her challenges and coming of age. It's more of a coming of age book. And, um, uh, and then there's a third one that I have in mind, but I obviously have to do the second one first. And then I would love to see um, a miniseries or um, movies made of the three. 
um, probably a miniseries because you, you couldn't fit the, all of it into one movie. You know, you'd have to stay for three days, like Nicholas Nickleby or something. But um, so I'm doing that. I'm doing a lot of writing. I also teach at American Film in- Institute Conservatory AFI and in Los Angeles and the Art Center College of Design in the film department. I teach directors how to work with actors, which is a lot of fun. And, uh, and I'm auditioning and working. I just finished a comedy called Fuller House that's going to be dropped onto Netflix in September, I think. And um, continuing to pursue my acting work. But my, um, my career seems to expand, you know, more as I get older. There are more things that I can offer besides just strictly acting, the teaching, the writing, the coaching, private coaching of actors. And of course, I love doing conventions, and this one has been especially wonderful because I was able for the first time to appear in full costume as Admiral Alina Necheyev, and that was a blast. Oh, wonderful. So if our uh, listeners wanted to, to connect with you, are you on social media like Facebook or Twitter? What's yes, the best way? Yes, I'm on Facebook, and it's Natalia Nogulich, N-O-G-U-L-I-C-H. Um, I have a website, www.natalianogulich.com. You can get my book through my website. You can get signed photos through my website, or you can get my book on Amazon.com. My first name has a kind of funny spelling, so I'm going to spell it for you, N-A-T-A-L-I-J-A. Natalia Nogolich. So it's kind of a mouthful, but um, yeah, and and there's a way to email me and communicate with me through uh, both those, Facebook and my uh, my website. And read my book. It's great. You'll love it. It'll be a movie someday. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. I definitely plan on, on checking it out, and thank you for taking the, the time today to uh, to do this interview with us. Thanks, Justin. It was a pleasure, and thank you for asking me. One of the things that I always get asked when I talk about my Star Trek fandom is that why do I choose Star Trek? It's outdated. It's a it's a false dream is what I hear often. And being a military uh, a military man as I am and um, joining the army as I did, most people thought I was a Star Wars fan, mainly because of the violence and the guns and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> But like um, one of the things I tell everyone, and I even tell this to my own daughter, that uh, you know the reason why I love Star Trek so much is because I'm being a part of something that's far bigger than uh, than myself, an idea that is so much opt- uh, so much optimistic that I mean it doesn't necessarily have to come uh, completely come true, and that's fine. And it's just one of those things that I enjoy thinking about because, like, even some of my um, my darkest days, when I was uh, let's uh, I'll give you an example, like my like when I was in the army, uh, there were some dark days uh, that were that I was uh, that I had out in Iraq, and funny enough, I had my DVD collection. It was only a certain certain amount of DVDs that I brought with me, and I had a portable DVD player. And I always popped in some of my favorite episodes, and for whatever reason, it calmed me down. Or it made my day a lot better because of the optimism that Star Trek brings that I absolutely just, I'm back to where I'm, I'm back to my center. <laughs> it's one of those things that I like to do. I guess you could say it's therapy. <laughs> um, and 
I, I, I certainly I certainly appreciate uh, everything that's uh, everything that Star Trek has brought to my life because a lot of the lessons that I've learned and even TNG is uh, is brought a lot. I mean, every every series has brought uh, brought a good uh, lesson to me, but more often uh, TNG brought more of those uh, lifelong uh, lifelong uh, uh, lifelong <laughs> lessons that um, I certainly do appreciate and. Ultimately, the 30th to me means it's all like like Amy said, you know, it's all the optimism that that comes with this uh, TV show, whether it be realistic, unrealistic, funny or not. <laughs> uh it's uh, it definitely it definitely uh, gives me a sense of hope for the future, in, especially in this time of uh, great uh, adversity within our own country and the world. So, um, but that's ultimately what uh, TNG is. I love the optimism, and you know, I share this with my daughter all the time. And yeah, it's nerdy, but it's the lessons you get out of it, and that's ultimately what it what uh, what I love about it. So, thanks TNG. <laughs> <laughs> Our next two interviews are with Daniel Davis, who played uh, Professor Moriarty, and Spencer Garrett, who played Simon Tarsus in the episode, The Drumhead. Okay, so we're here with uh, Daniel Davis, who played Professor Moriarty on Star Trek The Next Generation at Star Trek Las Vegas. So my first question is, what's your favorite non-Star Trek role? Well, I think probably my favorite acting roles have been the ones I've done on stage. I mean, I love doing Moriarty, and I love doing Niles on the Nanny. Mm -hmm. But uh, because the theater is really my first love, mm -hmm. those are my favorite roles. And the, you know, I've I've been so lucky to have done so many of the great classical roles because I started out just wanting to be a classical actor, which is why a boy from Arkansas sounds like he was born in the south of England, <laughs> and because uh, I had all of that you know great theatrical training. But I I was lucky because I've been in. Oh, I think it's. I think the press gets it wrong sometimes, but I think I've been in about 28 of Shakespeare's plays, playing major roles like Hamlet and Iago and Brutus and Benedict and Much Ado. And just three years ago, I I gave my rehearsal King Lear at a, at a theater in New Jersey and it's the only one on my bucket list that I want to do another time have another shot at it so I guess I guess I would say those are my favorites yeah oh that's wonderful thank you um, so what's your favorite memory of working on Star Trek the next generation well I would have to say um, just walking onto that set to begin with to walk onto the enterprise uh, because, you know, it's, it's such an iconic space. And I grew up watching, obviously, Bill Shatner and Leonard Nimoy. So when Next Generation came along, I had just recently moved to Los Angeles from New York to sort of try and get into television. And I, Star Trek was only, I think, maybe the third or fourth job that I got to do. So I was in awe of everything about it. And then the first person I met was Patrick Stewart, who, you know, Patrick and I are very similar in our background and training. So we we hit it off. We just it was right off the bat. He he was comfortable with me and I of course was comfortable with him. So my scenes with him and my scenes with Brent Spiner and, and Lavar. And I had Dinah Muldor, who of course was divine. So every person I worked with was a hero of mine. And I felt a little intimidated, but they make you feel very welcome on that cast, and so 
it just turned out to be a, an experience I cherish probably forever. Oh, that's wonderful. And we definitely cherish what you contributed to oh. Star Trek The Next Generation. Thank you. Very kind of you. Um, so, what would be a recent show, movie, or book that you've you know seen or read and really loved? Well, I, uh, I'm a fairly constant reader, and uh, my tastes are very eclectic. I go from Renard, you know reading uh, about space. I just finished reading uh, Mr. Mr. DeGrasse, his new book about that sort of explains physics to us in yes. ways that we can yes. understand. Mm -hmm. And. Um, and I'm reading something right now called The Master in Margarita, which is, uh, oh my gosh, it must be a 19th century Russian novel by a man named Bukharov, because I have this fantasy about turning it into a play. So, um, at this past season of television, I did a couple of episodes, two episodes of The Blacklist with James Spader. And again, the same relationship I had with Patrick, because James is a theater person with a strong background. And you know, when you're on a series like that, you love it when people show up who, um, you know, clearly have been trained and can do the work and do it and get it right in one take so we can all get home <laughs> early in the day. And I'm hoping perhaps that there will be some recurring roles on that come the fall. And I'm doing a new play uh, in New York at the Public Theater in February of 2018, uh, written by Bruce Norris, who won the Pulitzer Prize a few years ago for the Clybourne Park. And it's being directed by Michael Greif, who won the Tony for Rent and won the Tony for Evan Hansen. And he's a fantastic, fantastic company I'm going to be in and a wonderful group of actors. So that's, that's the immediate future. But then you never know. <laughs> Something else could happen. I'm very anxious to see the new, uh, the new Star Trek discovery that's coming. And I'm going to hint to them that they might find a little cubicle somewhere that has a man named Moriarty floating around in it. Excellent. And they can bring me back <laughs> to that. If we can figure out a way of, TG, of CGIing my accountant, my, my countenance, because now I have white hair and a few wrinkles that I didn't have <laughs> on the first go around. But that would be fun, I think, to do something like that. Absolutely. So you're here. How long have you been doing conventions? Oh, this is only the second convention that I've done for creation at Vegas. I was here two years ago. But I decided to come every other year okay. so that people wouldn't get bored with seeing me. And, uh, and you know, I meet, I'm seeing a lot of people that I met the first time around. They come back again and meeting a lot of new people. Um, back in the 80s, I guess, I did a couple of fan-driven conventions, and I did one uh, Star Trek cruise. And oh, I took, how was that? It was very interesting, but we were on really, the boat we were on was so dilapidated that oh. I thought we were going to do a Titanic any minute. Um, it had been a, what it had been, a, originally it was a cruiser through the Caribbean, a, a you know, a, for tourists to take a cruise on. Yes. Then when the Second World War came, it was converted to a troop ship. And then they reconverted it back to a cruise ship, but they left all the metal beds with the oh paper-thin mattresses. So we were on that, and it 
clanked and clanked all through the Caribbean, and I thought, we're never going to get back to Miami. But it, we did, and that was a lot of fun. John Delancey was on that cruise, and I took my friend Perry Gilpin, who ended up playing Frazier's Roz, uh, oh. the producer. She, uh, she was a great friend, and I said, come with me, we'll have a hoot. <laughs> and we did. I bet. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. Thank you. Well, thank you so much. I'm here with Spencer Garrett, who played Simon Tarsus on the Star Trek The Next Generation episode, The Drumhead. And we'll just ask you a couple of questions here at Star Trek Las Vegas. So first, what's your favorite non-Star Trek role that you've done? My favorite non-Star Trek role is a show that I did uh, in the last couple of years called Aquarius, uh, starring David Duchovny. It was about uh, Charles Manson before he became the Manson that we knew him to be. Uh, his early his early years, and it was probably the best role that's ever been written for me specifically. Um, it's a wonderful show and a great a great part, and uh, I, I had an, an amazing experience on it. I wish it didn't it didn't really catch on. It was very very dark, and uh, and I don't think the network really quite knew how to market it. Uh, but uh, it had a it had an interesting following, and it's interesting being here at the Star Trek convention because a lot of there are a lot of fans of Star Trek. Uh, kind of tuned into that show and uh, and know me from that as well, so it's fun. But it's it was it was the the best role I've ever had on a television series, um, so it's that's that one's particularly near and dear to me. So, oh, that's great. Yeah. Um, is there a recent show, movie, or book that you've you know seen or read that that you've loved and that you wanted to talk about? Well, there's a. Uh, I'm a I'm an avid reader. I'm a I'm a book junkie forever. There's a, a wonderful book by uh, a writer named uh, Michael Chabon, uh, who wrote. Uh, it's called The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, uh, that won the Pulitzer Prize several years ago, and it's about uh, a young man that escapes uh, World War II uh, Germany and comes to the United States and becomes a comic book artist in the 1930s in New York City. And uh, it's one of the most gorgeously written books I've ever read. I've read it probably five times now. And over the years, several people have, have sort of picked up the rights to it and threatened to have turned it into a, uh, a movie. Sidney Pollack had the rights to it at one point. Michael uh, Anthony Magella, um, who did uh, The English Patient and uh, uh, Talented Mr. Ripley. And it's a, it's a book that I, I love so much, and I hope somebody is able to pick up, pick up the you know pick up the reins and uh, and turn it into a film because it's going to be it's going to be an amazing movie but it's one of one of the greatest books ever written as far as I'm concerned so book wise that's uh, that's particularly close to me and um, uh, I just finished uh, I did a play in Los Angeles uh, uh, about a year ago uh, by Lynn Nottage who won the Pulitzer Prize she's the first woman first first woman to have won the Pulitzer Prize twice um, and uh, we're bringing that to New York uh, in the fall, uh, and it's called By the Way, Meet Vera Stark. It's about an African-American woman, an actress uh, in the 1930s in Hollywood, uh, trying, trying to, what it's, what it's like being an African-American woman in a white person's world in Hollywood in the 1930s. And I play a, I play a Polish movie producer, uh, kind of a Samuel Goldwyn type. So I'm looking forward to doing that, and uh, I've got a bunch of other projects in the pipeline. So. 
Oh, great to hear about those. Yeah. And I'll have to check out that book that you mentioned. Oh, it's 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 extraordinary. He's uh, Michael Chabon is uh, he wrote the mysteries of Pittsburgh. Uh, he wrote a book called Wonder Boys that was turned into a movie with uh, Michael Douglas and Toby Maguire. He's one of my favorite writers, so I, I I could I could go on about him. I love I love his writing. So if you're if you're a fan of great literature, you would really you'd really dig it. Great. Yeah. Uh, so what would be a favorite memory you have from working on Star Trek: The Next Generation? It was my first job. Um, I was fresh out of drama school, and I, I had done a couple of little things when I first got to Los Angeles from New York, and I guess the most significant memory is I, I wasn't really aware of what a big deal Star Trek was uh, when, I, when I was offered the job. Um, I certainly knew what it was. My godfather was an actor. He was on the original series. He played a character on Plato's Stepchildren. He played Zeus. Uh, did I tell you? Did we, did we talk about this? I guess we, I don't so, think so. So no. my godfather was an actor named Liam Sullivan. And so when I got cast in Star Trek, I called my godfather and I said, Liam, I just got cast as a Romulan on Star Trek. I said, I have no idea what a Romulan is. And so he was a huge Star Trek fan. And even have, you know, having performed in one of the iconic episodes in TOS uh, so he filled me in on what a Romulan was and the difference between a Romulan and a Vulcan and in the episode that I did I was a I was a Vulcan with you know Romulan blood who's put on trial and it was a whole sort of McCarthy-esque metaphor and uh, it was a beautifully beautifully written show beautifully written episode um, but I was very young I was very green I was very nervous uh, Jonathan Frakes, who's become a great friend over the years, directed the episode, and um, one of the great things that came out of doing the episode was my friendship with Jonathan and Brent Spiner and LeVar Burton, who are all dear friends to this day, but uh, I remember very significantly doing the scene with Patrick Stewart in his quarters um, and very much wanting to quote-unquote act and it was a very emotional scene and I thought, oh, this is going to be, this is a great opportunity to cry at this point. It's an emotional scene and I'd never cried on screen before and so I cried in the middle of the scene, in the middle of a take and it was very powerful and very emotional and Patrick seemed to love it and we, we finished the scene and we finished the day and I was on my way home and one of the ADs knocked on my trailer and said, we need you back on the set. And I said, why? And they said, well, we have to redo the scene because uh, they looked at the dailies and Romulans don't cry. So you wouldn't, you wouldn't be tearing up like that. So we had to reshoot the whole scene. Um, so that was, a, that was sort of a, that was a lesson to me. I, there was no internet back there. There was nothing to Google. So I couldn't Google, you know, the emotional availability of a Romulan. So I didn't know how to, how to portray him, really. I was just sort of going on instinct. So that was interesting. And, and, uh, but Patrick was lovely to me. Um, I, I, the, the best thing that came out of it was the friendships that came out of it. And then 10 years later, uh, Brandon Braga and Ken Biller and uh, uh, um, Ron Moore, they were all involved in the Voyager uh, iteration of it. And I, they brought me back to do, to do Voyager 10 years later. So, so that was fun. It was ni it's nice to be a part of this. This is my first convention. And I, I wasn't really prepared for the magnitude of it, I think. Um, but the most significant thing that I've gotten out of it is the love that people have shown me. People have come up to me and told me stories about how this episode affected them, how much they love this episode. 
So that means a lot to me. It means a great deal to me. I mean, I've done a lot of things as an actor. Um, I've done over 200 television shows, and this is my first. And to come here to Las Vegas like this and to have people walk up to me and say, you know, I've seen this episode 50, 60 times, and it's still very affecting to me, um, that, that means more than you can possibly imagine. Yeah, the Drumhead is a really powerful episode. It's one of my my favorites, and it's something that I think continues to be a, a relevant episode all yeah. these years later. Yeah. So it must be amazing to have done that for that role and think, okay, I did that, and we'll see what happens. That, but all these years later, people care about it and watch it and it affects them. That's the thing. I mean, I I I finished it and I went, okay, I've done that. On to the next. And I think the, the next thing I did after the Drumhead, I did a I did a western. I did a thing called Guns of Paradise, and I did, you know, I did Law and Order. And I did all of these other things, but I've been fortunate enough in my career to have done work all over the world, um, from Thailand to Kuala Lumpur to Canada to Istanbul, Turkey. And I kid you not when I say that every place I go, every where I am working, at least someone at some point will come up to me and say, "You're Simon Tarsus from the Drumhead," and that's wild to me. That blows my mind, you know. So that's, I mean, that's that's shows you what a what a global thing this is. It's extraordinary to me. Yeah, it's really amazing, and you see that all over the the convention here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, are there any you know other current work or upcoming projects you wanted to tell our listeners about? Um, I'm I'm on a show that's uh, streaming now on Amazon called Bosch. Uh, that's in its this is the third season. Uh, it's based on the Michael Connelly novels about the character Harry Bosch uh, as an LA detective. It's sort of an LA film noir, uh, beautifully written, beautifully acted show. My old friend Titus Welliver is the lead on that show. Uh, so I had a nice little uh, eight episode arc on that. Uh, performed on that last season and that's running now that's streaming on Amazon and then uh, uh, I'm on a show on HBO called Insecure uh, comedy so I don't get get a chance to do that many comedies so uh, so it's fun it was fun for me I did six of the eight episodes that are streaming now on HBO uh, or that are airing I guess they're 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 airing every every Sunday night that started airing two weeks ago so it's always fun to get to do comedy because I get to do a lot of... I, I usually play a lot of heavies, a lot of bad guys, a lot of guys in despair, a lot of grieving fathers, a lot of uh, morally challenged lawyers and senators and political people. So whenever I get a chance to do some comedy and do something light, it's a, it's a, it's a blessing. It's a, it's like I, feel, I feel 10 pounds lighter whenever I walk off the set because so I, I, I don't have to cry, I don't have to beat my chest. So it's nice. It's probably great to mix it up sometimes. Right? Absolutely, absolutely. And I try to mix it up with theater. And uh, I'm going off to uh, I'm going off to Nova Scotia to do a little independent film uh, next month. And I come back from that, and I'm doing a, a wonderful movie for Jason Reitman, uh, who did Juno and Thank You for Smoking, uh, which I was in. We're doing a movie about Gary Hart, uh, the Democratic uh, presidential candidate from 1988, who got busted having an affair, uh, called The Front Runner. So I'm going to be doing that. I'm playing Bob Woodward in that. So that'll be fun. So I mean, I give, a lot of times I get cast, I get to play real, real people. Uh, so I'm fortunate enough to be. Uh, I have people that that uh, my my girlfriend's a reporter at CNN, and uh, she when she found out I got cast, I said I'm. I said, can you introduce me to Bob Woodward? She said, sure. So when I get back, I'm going to get to sit down with him and actually talk to the guy I'm playing, which is not something you get an opportunity to do too often. Oh yeah, that's amazing yeah. to be able to do that. That'll be yeah. really cool. Yeah. yeah. So I'm looking forward to that. 
Oh, wonderful. So if uh, our listeners wanted to connect with you on Facebook or Twitter in some other way, yeah, how could I'd they get it. a hold of you? Uh, I'm on Facebook uh, as Spencer Garrett, and I'm on uh, Instagram as Spencer Garrett one the number one, and Twitter as one Spencer Garrett. Pretty clever, huh? <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for the interview today. We my appreciate pleasure. the time. Thanks so much. So I'd like to share my thoughts now on the next generation and what it means to me on the 30th anniversary. Uh, now, as a lot of our listeners know, when the next generation came out in 1987, uh, I wasn't a Star Trek fan. I didn't really have an awareness of Star Trek. Later on in the 90s, I watched a little bit of Star Trek, but really came back to it after the 2009 movie. And one of the things that I did after I saw that 2009 movie and wanted to go back and, and see what I had missed, some people ask me, oh, you know, that's a reboot of original series characters. Why didn't you go to the original series? The first thing I went to, though, was The Next Generation. Um, it was my wife's favorite, but also when I was taking a look at the different Star Trek series, it felt like the one that had this really great optimistic vision of the future. Now, the original series does as well, but within The Next Generation, there's something I think a little bit different that's, that's going on. Um, for me, throughout a lot of, of my life, I've seen and tried to understand some of the, the strife and the difficulties that people go through uh, where you know, the world and our country has, has gotten to at certain points and try to understand, is there a better way or is this going to kind of continue indefinitely? And I feel like especially in the next generation, that was something that I can latch on. This is a better future. There's no you know, poverty or, or war. Um, and people get all of the things that they need, at least within the Federation. And that's something that I can really appreciate and, and look forward to. And every time I see an episode of The Next Generation or in the, the TNG era, it makes me think of the possibility of what things could be. Now, I think we have a long way to go between here and that point that you see in the next generation era where things are, are kind of you know settled and the biggest thing oftentimes within the Federation that people have to worry about is what am I going to do for, for a career, not can I feed myself, do I have any shelter, you know, are, am I being affected by a war in my area? So they're able to kind of do the things that they want to. And I feel like a lot of times in, in our world, people are, are doing work because they have to, because it's something they have to do to survive or they have to do to make ends meet or to you know, feed themselves or, or their children or, or their family. And I like thinking of and aspiring toward a world where people can do what they want to to contribute to the world. They don't have to worry about earning the money that they need in order to to have basic necessities met, like like being fed or clothed or, or housed. So uh, when I saw the, the next generation, that was really the first part of, of Star Trek that I really fell in love with uh, because I loved thinking about this different future. Of course, there are conflicts in the series and things to try to defend those, those ideals, but I love thinking about those ideals. And when you know, things are at their darkest moments when you see the news and you see something that makes you despair about what we're going through in the world. Watching an episode of The Next Generation can give me hope because in that Star Trek universe, there's a lot of strife and a lot of difficulties that they go through in order to get to that point a few hundred years um, in the future. 
So it gives me hope that things can can get better. Um, and I just really appreciate that because I've been had been kind of struggling through a lot of my life before that to kind of conceptualize what a better future would look like. And Star Trek and specifically the next generation has done that for me. So it's a really great comfort whenever um, I, I see these episodes that we like to talk about every week. So our next interview is with Margot Rose, who played Aline in the beloved Next Generation episode, The Inner Light. This is a really great interview. It's a little bit longer than the other ones, but we had a really great time talking to her, and we hope that, uh, that you enjoyed this interview as well. So I'm here with uh, Margot Rose at Star Trek Las Vegas. She played Eileen in the Star Trek The Next Generation episode, The Inner Light. And I just have a few questions for you. Uh, so first, what would you consider to be your favorite non-Star Trek role? Oh, wow. That's a good question. Just television? It, it could be anything. It could be anything. Okay. I would say there's there are two stage things. One was I... I uh, replaced Gene Smart in Los Angeles in Last Summer at Bluefish Cove, and it's just a uh, it's a wonderful arc of a character, um, not age-wise, but time um, and and situational. And the woman ends up with cancer and goes through all sorts of her uh, life lessons, and you know, and, and dies at the end. But it's a very <laughs> oh, I like characters that die at the end. Oh my God! And um, the other is that I did a very long run of a, a musical called I'm Getting My Act Together and Taking It on the Road and it was quite a while ago you have to be an, an old codger not so much really but you have to have known it like 30 years ago but it was a wonderful wonderful experience and that went on for several years and then in terms of television wow um, I would say that uh, there was an episode of Starman that you know Robert Hayes, and it, that that whole series came and went pretty quickly. I think it was one or two seasons, but it was it was one of those things. I it was an it was an arc. It was um, a whole story. It was this woman's whole story almost, and that's the that's something that you're so fortunate to get. And and the inner light is like the best thing I ever got to do on television. You know, there was not there's nothing I could ever compare. I had other roles that I loved doing, but. Man, that was just great. Um, so, do you have a favorite memory from working mm -hmm. on that episode, The Inner Light? A couple. Um, <laughs> this wasn't favorite at the time, but I always remember this, that Michael Westmore did my makeup um, himself, even though he had, you know, God knows, members of his family all over the place, because there's such a dynasty. And he did the life cast that um, they had to do to then cover with latex for my old age makeup. And, and they, were, they were born on this stuff for this, this plaster cast. And I'm claustrophobic. It was really hard. And they're so, they were so sweet. Michael was there doing it. And there was another guy that, that, that moved in because they know that some people don't do well with that stuff. And he told me stories like some people have no problem with it. Like he did Robert De Niro for something. He fell asleep while he was doing it. But I'm there like holding on to this guy's hand like, oh. 
you know, the straws are coming out of your nose, and it's not easy if if you have a problem with that. But they were sweet as pie and really understood that. Did the whole thing, and then at the end of the shoot, Michael came up to me and he said, I want to give this to you, and he gave me that plaster cast that they used. So I still have that. And then from in the show with Patrick, I think so many of the moments with Patrick were things I carry with me and carry in my heart because there are very few people in television that I can even think of that I worked with that were as, as you know, generous and, and present, you know, and we had a chemistry. So my dying scene, I'd say, of all my memories of it, you know, how many times you get to die on camera <laughs> with Patrick Stewart over you. And it, that that was really um, fulfilling and, and touching. And I can watch that and get teary-eyed, removing myself from the fact that it's me, you know. Just the whole episode. I, I, I kind of love it as much as everybody does, you know, when I watch it and pull back, you know. I think it was a great, great thing. And so yesterday there was a panel on the inner light that had right. you, it had Patrick Stewart, it had Morgan Gendel who wrote the episode. What was that experience like talking about it all these years later and reminiscing about it? it, it it's, it's like one of those things, it, it is this with Patrick that I saw him six years ago and when I saw him six years ago it was the first time since we did the episode. And then six years passed and I see him again. And I think because when you bond with somebody by doing this, this, this shoot, you know, it's a 10-day, 12-day thing, but we were so intense and we played people that were in a marriage, you know, so there was a real bonding there and we really liked each other, so when I see Patrick, it's like an old friend, it's like no time has passed, you know, and we don't talk for long, but we're like, boom, and right there, and I felt that on stage, I felt... Even though we walk out and I'm escorted out and I knew there were going to be a lot of people, I did not know there were going to be about 2,000 people or whatever there were. I mean, I don't know. It was a big hall, you know. And I didn't know that. But it was not nerve-wracking. And when I got on that couch with Morgan, who I, I know and we're friends, and Patrick, whom I don't see that often but I feel an incredible connection to, I felt relaxed and casual, you know, and just uh, eager to share things that had just come up again for me in watching the episode again. Before we did the panel, I watched about three quarters of the episode again, and things popped up for me, you know, that I remembered, like the moment where he says he wants to have children, and I want to build you a nursery, and, you know, wild, you know, remembrances and seeing it from a perspective. And Morgan said things on stage that I had no idea about when I did the episode, you know. And I mean, he's talked about some of it since then when we shared a table or, you know, we've, we've seen each other. But there were some things about the construction of it and what, oh, what he wanted the flute to represent that I didn't, and he said some of those things and I turned to Patrick once and I said, I didn't know that. And Patrick said, yeah, me neither. You know, so it's, as an actor, you don't always know all that structural stuff and what I thought about it was 
Yes, that's why. Not just our acting and our chemistry, which is, you know, I think important and people talk about, but the construction of that episode and the, 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 the thought and, and the careful consideration that went into it is a, such a huge part of why it works as a story and people embrace it. You know, so it's, as they say, such a collaborative effort that then turned into a magic that, when you're lucky, it happens. And it's pretty amazing that 25 years later, there can be a panel just on that episode and you can learn things about it. I mean, that doesn't really happen much, no. right? No, no, and, and I think it's very rare for that to happen, and I've had a few times in my life when that's happened in all sorts of different ways, but it's just this moment you know, that, that becomes something that lives on because you put all these elements together, sometimes they're good or, you know, they kind of work, but sometimes they, you put them together and they kind of just, you know, there's this spontaneous combustion and boom, it's, a, it's like this magic, wonderful thing that so many people recognize and take in. And it, I've had so many people tell me stories about it one girl told me, Nikki, the one that asked the question, she came up to me and said, you're the reason I decided to be an actor. What? <laughs> so, and I've had other stories that people have told, and it's, it's, um, I just find it wonderful and, and, and gratifying, and it makes me so grateful to be an actor because I feel like, wow, it's not all selfish. I'm in service. So you also appeared on a Star Trek Deep Space Nine episode, Hard <laughs> yeah. Time. Yeah. So I'm wondering if you have a favorite memory from that experience. You know, somebody in the meet and greet for the, um, for the Elite <laughs> uh, that I did for just a few minutes before, the big one, asked me about the parallels between Deep Space Nine and Inner Light, and uh, I got through that question, but I was, it, it's like, because my focus is so much on Inner Light, and I do remember from that, because it was a relatively small role, but um, I do remember that, that, that makeup, because I was green, I was just green as I could be, you know, um, that, that makeup, it took a long time, and, and every time I saw my reflection, it was like, oh, you know? <laughs> and she was mean, and, um, and I, remember, uh, I remember a couple of the shots that we had, you know, where, where I had to really drop into that character, even though I didn't have a lot of camera time, to drop into this, this character that, with Aline, you know, I could, I could so easily step into her and use so much of, of my own experiences for her and, and really translate that and do sense memory like Patrick was talking about, which I use all the time. And it wasn't, it wasn't a difficult or a huge leap, you know? But with a character like Rin, I've played some not-so-nice characters, not that much, but... She, she was horrible, you know, I mean, she was just, you know, uh, not just by the book, but I played it with a little meanness in it, and I have to settle and make a leap to do that, you know, I don't want to do that, I want to smile, and I want to, you know, take the other path with the role, so 
just the, one of the first shots when I was standing, you know, differently than I stand, you know, with an expression that is a completely foreign one to me usually and have to use that sense memory of a time when I would feel like that, you know, and then I'm, I can get to this place, you know, and that's hard and it was a, it was a, it's a good experience. I love doing characters that are so different, you know, and I haven't done them too much. I did one with America Ferrara where I was white trash and I was a really terrible mother who threw her out when she got pregnant. I loved it, right? That was a favorite. Something a little different to change yeah, things Yeah, I always want to play white trash, and I get the lawyers and the judges and the doctors and, the, you know, and and not anymore as I've gotten older, These, the, the, like the kind of part I did on the inner light, but, you know, formidable principles, <laughs> things like that. I long to play the white trash. <laughs> Give me white trash, you know. So uh, tell our listeners about any current work you're doing or any upcoming projects you'd like to let them know about. Absolutely. Just last June, um, I self-produced and um, wrote, and at the end had to direct myself because I I let my director go, but uh, wrote and uh, put my band together, self-produced, and performed uh, a one-woman musical that I have been trying to finish and wanting to get on stage for almost as long ago as as Star Trek. Like for 20 years I've been working on this and trying to get it done. Not being able to finish because of my own fears, because of life, because of my children, you know, all these things. And I finally just slapped myself in the face and said, do it, and, and produced it this spring. It was more like a workshop, first production, but it was, it's called Spring Loaded, and, I, and it's a musical, and I had a beautiful band, a five-piece band on stage with me, a, a viola and a woodwinds with, with flute and saxophone, and it was percussion and keyboard and a bass, and it was a lovely band, and we had a great time, so now I'm, I'm rewriting the script. And uh, we're gonna we're gonna record some stuff for a live webcast. And I don't know if you know a thing called Songkick. They they do a webcast for you, and you record it on your computer, and you can do it from anywhere. So we're gonna do a live webcast of just the music. Then when I'm finished with a new script, we're gonna record the whole the whole show, do a video. So that's what's in front of me, and then try to get another production out of that. So. Wow, right? Wow. Yeah, sounds yeah. great. <laughs> yeah, and I'm not stepping away from television and film, but I'm pulling back a little bit from it because it's, it, I mean, I can, you, know, you can always get work. It can always happen. It does happen from time to time, but what's I've allowed to become more important to me is, is writing and, and doing this show that I've wanted to do for so long and uh, storytelling. I, I've also embraced storytelling and have done a couple of events. Um, Listen to Your Mother is this great big you know nationwide franchise thing in lots of different um, cities and I did the one in Burbank um, with a story of mine uh, last what was it May or something yeah so it was a lot of stuff bunched together so I'm gonna go on with all that you know more of my own work great so um Tell our listeners where they might be able to find you on social media, elsewhere on the right. internet, if they want to connect with you. Right, absolutely. Um, on on Facebook, I'm Margot Rose, and uh, you know, 
if you haven't been at the convention or anything and you're just a Star Trek fan or you want, you know, I'm pretty pretty good with friending anybody that, you know, says, hey there, you know, um, because I, I love to have, you know, fans and Trek people, and I've never had it be anything but positive, um, and so that's just me. I have a, a page called Margot Rose Music. I have a page for Spring Loaded, although that's, you know, slightly dormant until something new happens, um, and uh, uh, so there's that. Um, and I'm in some, a couple of the groups, like I'm in, they was invited to be in the Deep Space Nine uh, page, so I'm there. Oh, is that the Deep Space Nine fan club one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They, the, the, the guy reached out to me and I said, absolutely, bam. And uh, on Instagram, I'm Margot J. Rose. And on Twitter, I'm Margot J. Rose. And on both of those, there are um, spring-loaded pages, uh, which will pop up more as things as things heat up again but I'm, I'm either Margot Rose or Margot J. Rose don't forget the T on Margot and, um, and I'm pretty much on all the social media and like me on Instagram you know follow me on Instagram follow me on Twitter and I'm all, all over it you know okay. well thank you so much for taking the time for an interview today thanks so much for asking it's an honor so we also got some fan interviews, which was really great that we got to talk not only to some of the actors that participated in The Next Generation, but also interviews with some fans that were at the convention in Vegas uh, to just get a little bit of, of their thoughts. And included in that, uh, we also got an interview with uh, Phil Plate, also known as The Bad Astronomer, who's a big fan of The Next Generation. So we hope you enjoy uh, this series of interviews as well. So I'm here with Phil Plate, also known as the Bad Astronomer. Hey, that's me. <laughs> so uh, this is the occasion of the 30th anniversary of The Next Generation. So tell me what Star Trek The Next Generation means to you or how it might have affected your life. Um, I'm old enough to have watched uh, the original series when it was just coming out in reruns for like the first time in the, in the late 1960s and early 70s. And um, I was never a huge fan, but you know I liked the show and everything. I liked everything with science fiction. But when the movie started coming out, I got really excited. And then when Next Generation came out in 87, the timing was interesting. I had just graduated from college and I was starting graduate school. Mm -hmm. So I was about to embark on basically getting my PhD, starting my career for the first time, really. And I remember my first semester sitting down with my roommates in the house I was renting and watching it and talking about it. And it was like, this is amazing. We can actually have a Star Trek show to talk about again for the first time in so long. And then over the next, you know, seven years of the show, I was I was at the same time getting my PhD. When um, uh, when All Good Things aired, it was like literally within a couple of months of me defending my PhD. And I, and I really liked the timing of that. They um, they had talked about All Good Things being like a bookend for the show, going back to the first episode and, and the callbacks and with Q and everything. And for me, that had. Uh, a little more significance uh, personally uh, than it would have otherwise because yeah I was defending my PhD it was my entire grad student career also bookended by this show uh, and now uh, to go back and watch it it just it's a it's a nice feeling and and to know that it's been 30 years eh, maybe not maybe not so nice a feeling uh, wow 30 years but the fact that the show has endured uh, is amazing, and uh, I guess the fact that I'm still doing astronomy after 30 years after getting my PhD, uh, that's kind of amazing to me as well. So, so there you go. You know, this show can really uh, uh, represent something in your life. It's different for everybody, 
but it means something, I think, to, to every single fan. That's excellent how it's positively affected your life. Yeah. So do you have other um, favorite memories of, of watching The Next Generation or anything else that it's oh. meant to you? Uh, how much time do you have? Um, we, uh, in, in the, the cliffhanger for the third season, uh, Best of Both Worlds, uh, I was living with some friends. Uh, we had a big house, and there were four of us, uh, five of us total, four, four other guys in uh, astronomy and engineering, and we decided to throw a Borg party for Halloween. So that was right after the, uh, the cliffhanger uh, was resolved. And we dressed the whole house up like a Borg ship. We raided the basement of the astronomy department and got wires and tubing and everything and bought black clothes and white makeup. And it was, uh, it was a riot. It's to this day one of the best Halloween parties I've ever been to. Everybody showed up in costume, not necessarily Star Trek. But you know, it was just, it was that kind of stuff. We, we, it, was, uh, it was a little bit of an inspiration to all of us. And, and now, uh, you know, I'm lucky enough to be friends or to know some of the folks involved with the show. Uh, and, and so it's, it's, uh, it's, it's honestly a part of my life in a, in a real way. And that, uh, I, it's hard to explain. I mean, that just makes me so happy. It's like, really? That's so cool. Uh, it's fun to, be a, to, to really fan out about the show uh, and, and to, to think about the personal connection. And I'm just really, really, really fortunate to have, to have been able to experience what I have. Oh, that's that's amazing. So, at the the convention here in in Vegas, have you been to a lot of conventions before? Is the experience you know different if you've been to a lot of them before this one? It's uh, a good question. I've never been to um, this Star Trek convention. I went to a shore leave in Baltimore many years ago, and last year I was at uh, Mission New York, which was a lot of fun. Uh, Holly Amos with uh, with CBS uh, is a friend, and she she has been pushing to get more science at these conventions. So I'm I'm here. So I moderated a couple of panels about the search for alien worlds, exoplanets, strange new worlds. And I'm giving a talk about the eclipse in a few minutes, actually, the eclipse coming up. Um, so I've been to a few Star Trek conventions, and I've been to a lot of science fiction conventions. Um, they're all different. They all have their own personality. This one, it, it, when it's a, a, I don't want to say niche, but it's a niche. You know, it's one show. Uh, there's a different vibe, a different flavor to it. Uh, and I'm, I'm digging it. Uh, I, I love to see... Uh, uh, all these different people, they've all got their own thing going on, uh, they're all inspired by the show, they all, I, I, how do I say this, um, we all have um, our own issues in life that we're dragging around with us, and, yet we, and when you come here, you're not judged. You know, in, in everyday in life, it's like, oh, that person is, oh, gosh, those people in IT, or, or you know, it's, or in science fiction, it's like, oh, you like Stargate SG-1? I'm a Stargate Atlantis fan. But you come here, and it's like, you know, you like Enterprise? Oh, awesome. I'm more of a Deep Space Nine person. But, you know, let's talk about Enterprise, because I remember that one, blah, blah, blah. And there's a, just a lot of acceptance here and a lot of uh, openness that is really endearing and hopeful and I think uh, is really... Uh, the message of the show, and it, and here it has come to life. It's fantastic. So uh, tell our listeners where they can find you on the internet. Everywhere. Um, I've been around a long time. Uh, it's not so much that I'm great; it's that I'm just you know haven't died yet. Uh, now you can find me on Twitter. I'm Bad Astronomer. Uh, my blog is the Bad Astronomy blog on SciFi.com. I write for the SciFi Channel. Uh, you can always just go to About Me slash Phil Plate, and I've got links to all my social media there as well. Okay. Excellent. Thanks so much for the interview today. Thank you.
So what has Star Trek The Next Generation meant to you, or how might it have affected your life? Well, I started watching when I was in high school, and it was really kind of the bonding item for my circle of friends. We were going to different things, and we all just kind of watched Next Gen as it came out. We liked it, moved on to college, we all kind of went to the same college, started our own little club just to have somewhere to watch each week. Just it's more of, you know, your campus party for people that didn't really drink a lot. Mm. And so it was fun just to have some place to go that was fun and entertaining and the same kind of like-minded people without what you might think of as the typical college excess. And then over the years, it's just kind of gone from there. We see each other at conventions now and then, so it's nice to catch up with somebody you haven't seen for five, ten years. Oh, wonderful. Thank you for sharing. Yeah. So what does Star Trek The Next Generation mean to you, or how might it have affected your life? Well, the first thing I remember about Star Trek The Next Generation, it was the one time where my family would sit down together every week to watch a TV show together. That was kind of cool. I was 10 when it first came out. So that that was a really cool thing. But it, it presented this this idyllic future you know no money everyone's equal everyone's respected and the one thing that really got me was when someone came to the captain and said this is happening no matter how unbelievable it was they believed it and they checked it out so nobody was you know no way you know and that's that's what really stuck with me with that was everyone was always respected and believed and and they checked out everything. So, yeah. yeah, wonderful. Thanks for sharing. Yeah, no problem. So tell me what Star Trek The Next Generation means to you or how it might have affected your life. So Star Trek The Next Generation for me was, was part of me growing up as a teenager. So uh, I, I watched a lot of it when I was a, a young teenager, when I was, say... 12, 13, 14, 15, um, when it was both airing for the first time and then later on in reruns. And to me, it was the first TV show that treated space not as an inhospitable landscape, not as something filled with vengeful aliens or uh, parasites that want to kill you at the first step, but as a complex place, as a place where things that are difficult can be overcome not with violence necessarily, but with diplomacy, with science, and ultimately with understanding. And, um, and to me, it helped shape some of my, some of my thoughts on, on what science fiction could be. You know, I've always been a big fan of science fiction, but to me, Next Generation taught me it doesn't have to be fighting. It doesn't have to be combat. Negotiation, diplomacy, and science, and frankly, just humans being in a completely undiscovered environment is really fascinating, too, and it was a lot of fun to watch. Thank you. So what does Star Trek The Next Generation mean to you, and how might it have affected your life? So I was also a teenager when it came out the first time in Finland, obviously, and uh, I was fascinated by the way they could solve problems by taking into consideration morals and ethics, and like uh, you don't have to fight, you don't have to have a space battle, you can make a speech, and you can solve the problem. Excellent. Thank you. I feel that this 
episode here and for to celebrate the 30th anniversary. It's sort of our love letter to Next Generation. And that wouldn't be complete without me recognizing um, Trek FM. And finding Trek FM has really expanded my love for Next Gen and for Star Trek overall. I really am so grateful to be co-hosting on Earl Grey with such good friends, Richard and Justin. Um, my love affair with Trek and Next Gen has only grown stronger because I found the network. And I really enjoy learning more about Trek from amazing like-minded fa- like-minding. Let's see. And I really enjoy love learning more about Trek from amazing like-minded fans on the Babel Conference. Uh, it has truly... Um, It's truly made me appreciate Star Trek much more and getting into the other series, but I, my true love will always be with Next Gen. And so I'm just so grateful to be here to be talking Star Trek each week. So thank you. See, there's that warm, fuzzy feeling again. I know. (laughs) All that love and warmth of warm maha. <laughs> That's awesome, you know. And I'll to piggyback on that, you know, one I've been on Trek FM for about three years now. Uh, well, most of it has been uh, as the uh, production manager and behind the scenes kind of stuff. And you know, about this, uh, this about I don't know, six months we've been doing this, Amy. Yeah, six months. Yeah, something like that. And it definitely has been a a, a very exciting adventure to. Uh, you know, to do this, I mean, going from Star Trek Ve- uh, Las Vegas, you know, meeting you, Amy, as well, and, you know, coming to my wedding and even even meeting Justin as well. Well, not in person. We'll get to that. Yes. <laughs> well, these days. Um, and it's just been and also, oh, let's not forget Lee. You know, Lee's been a very, uh, very pinnacle part of this whole entire show, or at least uh, Earl Grey 2.0. And for sure, this has been an exciting adventure that, you know, it has also has sparked my interest more into Star Trek, even more so. I don't comment like everyone else does, but that's okay. I I read a lot. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's just, it's been very, um, very exciting. I absolutely love uh, what we're doing here and two more shows. Yeah, and, and just to add to that, so... You know, I've I've just been a part of <clears throat> of Earl Grey for a little more than than a month here, um, but I you know did listen to to Trek FM for about a, a year and a half before that, um, and had kind of gradually gotten more involved talking on on social media to people about Star Trek, and I love that interaction. But you know, also having the the amazing opportunity to be a part of Earl Grey and talk about The Next Generation each week, a show that I really love. And when I was first watching The Next Generation, um, you know, I, I, I talked with my wife about it a, a little bit, but to be able to talk, you know, each week and kind of go in depth and analyze and have fun and, you know, laugh about it uh, each week for, for this dedicated hour has been amazing. It's definitely deepened my, my Trek fandom so that it's just a part of every single day of, of my life now. And, you know, even most hours of the day, it seems like sometimes because I'm just gotten me so into it. So yeah, thank you, um, Amy and, and Richard, uh, for everything that you've done for Earl Grey. And, you know, of course, Christopher Jones for starting Trek FM with this idea that he had all those years ago, that's led to so many amazing things, so many amazing conversations and, and friendships. And, you know, that's also an outgrowth of, 
of Star Trek and its beginnings over 50 years ago, but also its its kind of revitalization, I, I would say, with the, with the next generation 30 years ago, um, helped to kind of carry things forward for a new generation of, of fans. So, yeah, it's it's been great kind of celebrating um, what you know, the next generation means to us and what it means to, you know, the actors and and the fans um, who have been involved in it. Yeah. And we would be remiss to not thank the original Earl Grey crew. And that's who actually brought me in to Trek FM. I randomly was searching for podcasts and obviously Next Gen was my favorite and I found Earl Grey and Daniel, Darren and Philip just, I was hook, line, sinker with them. And so they brought me into the network and I love their show and it truly is an honor to follow in their footsteps. Um, but their love and their passion and their humor is is contagious and so very grateful for them starting Earl Grey. Yeah, and I want to echo that as well because I enjoyed so much listening to Philip, Daniel, and uh, and Darren talk about the next generation each week and, you know, that, that helped also deepen my interest in, in Trek FM and, you know, when there was an opportunity to be a part of, of Earl Grey, you know, it's, it's such a fun show through and through, you know, with, with, uh, the, the first crew and, and with you guys doing this, that it's just, you know, an amazing experience and so, you know, happy to be part of that tradition. Okay. So listeners, I wanted to follow up about something we talked about on Earl Grey 194, where we were talking about the funniest moments in TNG. Uh, we talked about one-liners. We mentioned that Worf has great one-liners. Data has great one-liners. Um, Richard threw in there that Q has great one-liners. So we put a poll out to Twitter um, on the main Trek FM Twitter account, and we got a lot of votes. We got 181 votes, which is awesome. Thank you, everyone who voted there and participated. And the winner was Worf, which Richard is very happy about. I'm happy about too. I think he deserves to win, but I thought it would be more of a runaway because you hear people talking about Worf's one-liners a lot, but Worf got 36%. Q was second with 29%. He was almost an afterthought during that episode. Um, and then Data third with 28% and 7% of people wanted somebody else. I saw a couple people say Picard in there, but um, yeah, so I wanted to share the the results of that. What do you guys think about those results? Yeah, I think it's great. <laughs> um, Worf definitely has, I would say, the shortest one-liners. I mean, one word, you know, die, you know. So it was interesting to see the polls. There was some great comments and definitely we missed a lot. But, you know, it just goes to show how really funny Next Gen is. It was great to see those, the polls and people voting. Well, it's not just Next Gen, <laughs> especially when it deals with Worf, but uh, definitely, uh, yeah, I'm excited. That's that's awesome. Yes, today is a good day for Worf to win a poll. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, listeners in the UK, we are still having our Trekonomics giveaway. We would love to have you go to the iTunes and give us a star rating and written review. That really helps listeners find us, and we. We'll have the drawing in uh, the end of September. So your time is short, but please go to iTunes and give us that. And this Trekonomics book is amazing. 
and you will very much enjoy it. And Richard just held up his copy and he can vouch for it as well. Absolutely. As I've said uh, this episode and the episode before that and before that, this book is great. <laughs> it really is. Uh, not not even not even kidding with it. Um, it's uh, uh, it's it's just so much information and it's it makes sense and I absolutely love it. I don't want to give it away and all that kind of stuff. It's a great read and it'll open your mind. No, but we do want to give it away. See what I did there? So you UK listeners, get on and go give us a star rating and written review. Well, it's been fun celebrating the 30th anniversary of The Next Generation, but that isn't the only thing we've been talking about here on the network. Here is what you might have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, Melodic Treks. I really like the two... Uh, the two Fairhaven episodes that we got. I know a lot of people are either very hot on these episodes or very cold on them. They've never bothered me. I think they're a lot of fun and they're silly, but whatever. But one of the things that's really cool about them is we get something different in the musical field for Star Trek with this wonderful Irish style music. Earl Grey. Well, I just noticed mine deals with all naked people. Yeah. <laughs> Richard! Wow! All right. (laughs) Wait a minute. Oh, Justice Tapich, you're right. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) I just noticed that. I was like, oh. There's nudity in each of those episodes. (laughs) Hmm. Hmm. Well done. (laughs) TVMA. Warp 5. It was a weekly thing. It was originally on Tuesdays. At some point, Tripp decided to make it a nightly thing. Or at least that was his idea, but then it went back to a weekly thing. I'm like, that sounds just like my life, because this is the type of thing where it's like, yeah, you get together every Tuesday, and then you gotta wait a whole week, and at some point you're like, we should be doing this every day. To the journey! Yeah, I mean, the way that he behaves towards Balana is kind of... He gets a bit creepy there. <laughs> well, he gets punched too, just like Joe Carey, so... He does. Balana makes a habit of punching us that. <laughs> team building it's like trust falls it is team building <laughs> maybe maybe it's like some kind of exciting club yeah I've been punched by Bolana club I've been punched by Bolana and I'm obviously now in the inner circle <laughs> engineering and that's what else is happening on trek.fm Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And please leave us a star rating and written review. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, especially warm, caring thoughts uh, about uh, the, our love of the uh, 30th uh, anniversary of TNG. But there are many ways that you, can, uh, that you could do that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners uh, group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come up right away. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Earl Grey. That will come right to us. 
You can also find the network on Twitter at TrekFM and on Facebook at facebook.com slash TrekFM. So Justin, where can people contact you and tell you about their love affair with NextGen? Well, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at TrekFan4747, where I tweet about nothing but Star Trek. So any thoughts that you have anywhere in Star Trek, feel free to participate in the conversation I have going on on Twitter. And I'm also tweeting out my season three TNG rewatch. And you can also find me hanging around the Babel conference on Facebook. So Richard, where can people find you? Well, uh, they could also find me on the Babel conference. I pop in here and there. Um, and I also, I'm also on Twitter. My handle is at X is X ransom. So Amy, where can everyone find you and uh, send your lovely heartwarming messages to you? Well, I, you can find me here on the network. I am co-hosting The Edge, which is Trek FM's dedicated podcast to Discovery. I also do a little show called Postcards from The Edge, and that talks about the fan response of Discovery. So get onto the Babel Conference and post your comments and uh, enjoy that. I, I really like postcards. You obviously find me on... You can you obviously can find me in the Babel Conference, and I'm there on Facebook, and I also am on Twitter at Miss Amy Nelson. Now, if you'd like to help keep all of our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron on the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. We'd like to take this opportunity to recognize our current associate producers, Norman Lau, Justin Ozer, and Michael Huter. Thank you so much for supporting Earl Grey. So join us next time for another cup of Earl Grey. Great joy and gratitude. Things are only impossible until they're not. Today is a good day to die!